Welcome. We're Jackie and Brian, and this is As the Ice Cream Churns. Together, we founded Ample Hills Creamery, one of the most beloved ice cream brands of the last decade. Then we lost it all. We filed for bankruptcy a day before New York City shut down due to COVID-19. Now, someone else owns Ample Hills, and we're out of work. But we're ready to start over. Come join us for an exploration of what went wrong, and more importantly, what comes next. Our guides are close friend, Debbie Rosen. She created the cracked cookies in our hit flavor, salted cracked caramel. When she's not baking, she's a therapist. We thought she could help us navigate these troubled waters. Let's get started. Hey, Debbie. Hey, Debs. Hi there. So this week, um, we are going to spend the episode answering questions that everybody has uh, submitted and asked. and appreciate all your thoughtful questions. So Deb, do you wanna read the first one? Sure. Tasting 238 asks, what do you miss most about leaving Ample Hills? So um, I think one of the things that I miss the most is being in the scoop shops, scooping ice cream alongside the employees, Um, you know, being around customers and the environment and the vibe that we created that as as a community member, as a person who lives in Brooklyn and who always wanted to create this environment, now no longer feels good about going in there because it's it's hard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, 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 for me, it's like this loneliness that you, uh, you know, that we didn't have when we had Ample Hills and we could go into the shops. And, you know, it's being connected to that broader community, both the scoopers, but then also uh, the customers and being part of something that was bigger than our household that we've spent through coronavirus a lot of time together and it's wonderful yeah. but like it's about the the connection to something so much bigger than the four of us in the house um you know it's it's that's the hard part ej riley 123 would like to know what did the new owner do to turn you off from working with him which raises the questions do you have second thoughts now and do you wish you'd stayed on at Ample Hills? Hmm, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I think in, in terms of the new owner, it was, um, you know, it was clear that, that there was no partnership that he wanted to form with us, which is really, I guess, naive on our part, but it was what we were hoping for from a new buyer, that they'd want to work with us and want to be partners with us not you know financially <laughs> but just you know uh what 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 we did so well um to be a part of that mm-hmm. together so it felt wrong really to not be able to be a partner with somebody um and and that was probably the yeah, biggest I, I mean, issue I, I think that's right i mean in terms of second thoughts oh my god yes i mean <laughs> when i when I wake up at three in the morning and have to go to the bathroom and I can't get back to sleep, um, uh, you know, I thinking about having to pay the bills or buy the groceries, uh, you know, money would be good. And uh, it, it, it's there in that sort of the darkest uh, of, of night uh, when you really say, what the hell did we do and, and why did we make this decision? But you know, in the light of day, uh, in the morning, the resolve comes back. You know, the thing is, Jackie and I have never taken the easy road. I mean, from the very beginning, when I turned down that job with the audiobook company, uh, you know, that was the easy choice. I mean, that was the choice that I, I desperately wanted to make because I didn't want to have to go open the shop that we designed and spent all this time doing because I knew how terrifying and scary it was. I wanted to just have this out of taking this job and going to work and having benefits and being able to take care of the kids. 
And, you know, but we didn't because um, there's something in our DNA. I mean, <laughs> you know, why are you laughing? Risk averse, we're not. I mean, you know, yeah. and so like at the end of the day, like uh, that's the, to our benefit because it allowed us to like build and grow Ample Hills. And obviously it's, it's to our detriment because those risks also, you know, when taken too far led to us losing Ample Hills. But yeah, I'm sorry. I <laughs> no, I mean I'm I'm not laughing maniacally because uh, you know I, I I don't I I feel like we very frequently do things that are so much more difficult. Um, but we like you said we just it's in our DNA. Mm. It it just we can't help ourselves. Like yeah. you know we we've got to take the the more difficult path, the harder road, the. Yeah you know most riskiest uh... well it's also about you know following our own path and being creative right and so at the end of the day whether or not we felt you know feel regret or second thoughts at the end of the day we know that waking up in the morning and going to work with somebody that we couldn't uh, see eye to eye with and, and agree with would have felt like a really slow death. And, mm. you know, you know, we'd rather be poor now and control our destiny than feel like we were part of somebody else's journey. And I think, I mean, that's, that's hard because yeah. it's maybe not the responsible thing to do with kids, but it just, it feels like it's the responsible story to tell, um, the kids. Sarah Miller sent in, would it, have been easier to have had the shops close or a competitor buy it and shut it down as opposed to watching the stores new ownership interact with a following you built and no longer control i mean yeah it's hard to see our company being run by someone else and they actually bought the goodwill of the brand that was in the purchase agreement our photos, our family photos are all over the shops. They're embedded in the tables. Um, so emotionally, yes, it would have been easier to have, you know, had another ice cream company come in and take it over. Yeah. I mean, divorce is, it's like divorce in a way. And I, I mean, I mean to minimize death, but, you know, I often hear people say that in some ways the, the death of a partner is, is, is easier than divorce, you know, because you continue to see their lives go on as opposed to this sort of horrible, terrible morning, but then it's over and everybody can grieve with you. And in this sense, you know, Ample Hills goes on and we have, you know, see it and are reminded of it every day. Whereas, you know, uh, in some ways it would have been easier emotionally, not, not good for all the employees though. So, I mean, we, we don't wish that it's just, no, it we would, don't wish that at all. We're, yeah. we're glad that, you know, um, they, yeah. that everyone, you know, has, has been able to keep their jobs, those who wanted them, which is wonderful. And I'm proud that we've actually created this company that has, has done that, you know, for the, the good of, you know, the community for the, you know, I mean, it really, it's something that I think I, I want to constantly remind myself because I sometimes walk around feeling badly about everything that happened and just, you know, feeling low, but saying, Hey, look, we did this. And, you know, <laughs> all these people wouldn't be employed if we hadn't, you know, grown the company in yep. the way that we yep. did. Yep. So, yep. you know, Mona Lipson asks, what would you tell your 11, 12 year younger selves after all you've been through? Um, I, I think, <laughs> um, chill out and enjoy the ride. Uh, you know, um, maybe get some better business growth strategic advice, which is, you know, kind of what we're doing now, but, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, uh, back then I think that, that, that would have been really helpful. Yeah. Get good, get a good finance person from the beginning, mm. you know, follow, uh, economic models, uh, instead of just, you know, carrying bags of cash around to the bank. I mean, you know, having a, a model, a plan, <laughs> right. uh, all, all of that. Tina at Milk and Cookies, New York City, asks, how did you inform the people who invested the $12 million about the bankruptcy, and did they have to take a loss? Also, interested in hearing what their reaction was and how they handled their loss. Yeah, I mean, those were hard conversations to have because, of course, you know, some of the investors, you know, were good friends before they were investors. 
and many of the investors then became good friends. Uh, and so, you know, it was really um, uh, a difficult thing to have to explain to them that, you know, we had come to this place. Uh, yes, I mean, in terms of did they have to take a loss? Yes. I mean, that's what happens when you invest in a sort of an equity situation like this. Um, you know, the investors are, are, are basically, they're, they're playing for an exit, uh, if you will. And what that means is you invest so many dollars at a valuation, let's say the company's valued at $10 million and you invest so many so much money and then you're waiting for the company to potentially grow to a certain size and be bought by another company or sold uh, and for a hundred million dollars and so that means the investment you made is worth 10 times what you put into it and you would see that money upon that exit you wouldn't see the money in terms of dividends or returns of profits. It, it, it doesn't work that way in that equity model that we'd raise money at. So people were playing a long game and waiting for that sort of exit to happen. Um, you know, and, and so they, you, you always know when you go into an investment like that, that, you know, you can lose everything. Um, it doesn't make it any easier, I imagine, when you do lose it. But yes, when, when a company... Uh, goes belly up and goes through bankruptcy, you know, all the investors um, are wiped out. I mean, that that uh, happens uh, to everybody equally. Um, so their reaction, I mean, you know, some of them uh, were super angry. I mean, I remember a couple people writing very long and passionate and very angry emails uh, that, uh, you know, felt like we had uh, betrayed them and uh, screwed them uh, out of their money and, uh, and so on. And other people were much more understanding. And, um, you know, it, it basically came down to, you know, people that were uh, professional investors that sort of, you know, uh, you know, psychologically write off their investment when they make it because they, they know that they can lose it are more uh, accepting and understanding if they do lose it than maybe somebody who's investing um, because they're passionate about this thing and it's not it's 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 you know maybe more money than they thought that they should have invested but they really believed in it and so those are things that you know we still struggle with uh, because you know we can't we can't do anything about uh, those losses Runit wants to know, why didn't the investors on your board see the expenses of the factory and weigh in on this? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a good question, uh, Runit. Um, you know, uh, you know, they should have. I mean, we all, we all bear responsibility. I certainly bear the most responsibility as the CEO and the head of the board. Uh, the board met, you know, once a month. And the people on the board, um, you know, could see um, what was happening. But the, I, I guess, you know, a couple of things happen. Uh, you know, there's something called groupthink. And, and, and people, you know, sort of start to, to think and, and feel similarly over time. Sometimes, you know, you start to sort of drink your own Kool-Aid and your own story and your own narrative. And everybody together... Um, you start to you stop necessarily questioning uh, every decision or every thought and um in terms of sort of technically how they didn't see um, the expenses as they were piling up at the factory part of the problem was that we didn't have a finance department that was um that didn't have the finance department didn't have the resources it needed they were understaffed and uh, underserved by us and we had not put the the proper money towards uh, giving them the people that they needed and so they were constantly behind three months six months on sort of uh, that critical window into what the hell's going on in the company and understanding the math and so because uh, they were behind, those, those are sort of critical moments where the board and the CEO and myself don't necessarily have the information they need 
at the point that they needed to make the decisions because you know and so we were always trying to catch ourselves up and and uh, we didn't see the problem until too late to be able to put enough resources uh, towards it. Runit also asks, was there any feasibility study done for the factory in terms of size, production, operating requirements, and labor? Well, Runit, that would have been a good idea. <laughs> no, uh, we didn't do a feasibility study. Um, there's really not much more to say there, except for if we were to build another factory, I would do a feasibility study. But uh, no, we just thought, you know, hey, it's 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 not rocket science. You know, it's like we know that this machine can make so much ice cream and uh, it just didn't seem like we needed uh, such a thing. But yes, we should have had one. Bill Graber wants to know. If the shops were so successful and the factory was the real problem, why didn't you just shut shut the factory down to save the company? Well, you know, I mean, that's a, that's really smart. And and honestly, at, at first, I would say the reason was one of denial. Uh, I mean, the factory, while it had run over budget by a couple million dollars. Um, when it opened uh, in the um, late summer, early fall uh, of 2018, um, you know, it was shiny and new and we loved it. And we had literally spent uh, years building it out and millions of dollars. Um, so we weren't going to walk away from it at that moment. Um, and, you know, it took it took a long time to come to an acceptance um, as a company, as a business, um, that the factory might be a problem, you know, and, and, and also that we could maybe survive without a factory. I mean, when we opened Ample Hills, I made every scoop of ice cream myself uh, out of that kitchen at Vanderbilt, and I did it in front of the public. And so to me, it was, it, it felt absolutely critical to our DNA that we make the ice cream uh, from scratch, from beginning to middle to end, in front of the public. And the so, the only way to keep doing that as we grew was to build out a big factory. But at the end of the day, there is something called co-packing, which a lot of other ice cream brands do. And that means you go and you find another ice cream factory, a company that makes ice cream and they can make our flavor. So Ample Hills could have taken all of our recipes, exact same ooey gooey butter cake recipe, Nona D's oatmeal lace recipe, and given it to this other co-packer, and they could have made our ice cream for us. Nobody would be able to tell the difference at that point because, again, it's the exact same recipes, right, executed by somebody else. And then we would basically buy that ice cream from them. And you could do it at half the cost, half the cost, that it was costing us to operate the factory. So we only came to that understanding in probably November or December um, of this last year. So maybe two or three months before we filed for bankruptcy, at which point it was too late to save us from bankruptcy. It was definitely one of the thoughts coming out of bankruptcy was that somebody might buy the company and say, hey, we should shut the factory down. Um, you know, to the new owner's credit, they're trying to keep the factory. I mean, obviously, I would have loved to have kept the factory, but it requires accepting that there's going to be a lot of financial losses before there are any financial gains, because basically that factory is going to lose money and continue to lose money for a while until the company can grow to a certain size that it could support it. The quicker, easier uh, path would have been to have not built the factory or to shut the factory down and move to a, a co-packing model. Uh, Runit's final financial question. <laughs> Why were the books not managed enough to see the cash flow issue? Thank you, Runit. Um, <laughs> why were the books not managed enough? Well, that goes back to the fact that the finance department um, didn't have the resources or the yeah. people power to manage the books. And yeah. obviously, that was like a critical factor um, and an issue that yeah. we, you know, 
I think. Yeah, no, I mean, when it was it was June um, of last year when the finance team came and to 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 me, and we had talked about this in another earlier episode, and said, you know, the models showing us now that we're not going to make it through the winter. We don't have enough money, and that was like a, a a shock at that point in time. Um, and I, I, you know, I mean, we should have just, we should have just known, uh, earlier than that. Um, and, uh, we didn't, um, there's no good answer. I no, I, I think, I think the, the health of, of a business, um, is, you know, rooted in the health of the finances, you know, yeah. I mean, and I, I think, we know that now. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we, we paid the ultimate price. Yeah. And it sounds like there is a communication breakdown between you and the finance. Yes, I think that's, yes. that's absolutely fair to say. And I, I, I don't, I think it would be unfair to throw the finance team under the bus. I mean, I, you know, again, everybody at the company bears some responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, and ultimately, you know, that responsibility is mine for not, you know, funding the finance team and having the right people in place uh, and communicating uh, what we needed out of the finance team. But I remember going to our biggest investor in June and explaining to him what we just learned from the finance team about not having enough money. And, you know, you want to talk about investors, you know, reactions like he just raked me over the coals. He's like, how do you as the CEO not know where every mm. damn dime is going? How do you not know uh, that you didn't have this money in the bank? How are, how is this a shock, Brian? How is it? And, I, you know, as much as I don't have an answer right now, I didn't have an answer for him then. It's just, um, you know, we'll do better next time. That's all, all I can say. Mona Lipson asks, what would you rather, uh, sorry, would you rather not have investors moving forward and keep things more local, small, or do you want to build another national brand? Um, so I, I think what we want to do now is, is focus on what we do really well and, um, allow that to gestate, um, you know, with the idea that we could grow, but only when we're ready and, um, and it's in keeping with our core principles and vision and of course, financial stability. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's always great if you cannot take other people's money right uh, obviously that would be ideal uh, unfortunately for us if it's probably not realistic at this point since we of course have just filed personal bankruptcy and we don't have anything and have no resources so um you know it, that's a catch-22 i you know it's just there there's there's better ways um to sort of i think approach it um but you know that would certainly be the goal john haas asks why didn't ample hills have more success in grocery stores and did it not sell well because it was too expensive or was it hard to get shelf space yeah i mean uh, that's a great question and i i do think um it's probably a little bit of uh, it's definitely a little bit of both um you know ample hills did have some success in grocery stores and honestly we didn't really get involved in that wholesale business into grocery stores until the factory came online so you know because at the time before that we were hand packing pints and so we just didn't have the opportunity to make enough and so once we were able to get the factory and automate pint production um, you know, we grew from 80 or 90 grocery stores to about 800 or 900 in a year. So that was that was some significant uh, movement and success. And, you know, the ice cream sold pretty well in the New York City tri-state area stores and the stores, you know, closest to our own shops. And that has to do with, of course, name recognition, brand recognition. Um, they were expensive pints. Uh, and so that while it's not as huge a challenge in the city um and in stores um you know like um 
you know, the, the Whole Foods where, you know, our pints at eight ninety nine um, were not even the most expensive pints, where there are other pints that were 10 or $11. Um, it's certainly not a big challenge there. It's certainly a bigger challenge when you get outside of the city. Um, even when you get to like Connecticut and we were in um, stop and shops, uh, is that right? Um, and those, you know, and, and there it was more challenging because yeah. it was the most expensive pint. Um, and, you know, yes, in terms of getting it into shelf space, that's always a challenge when you're um, starting out. Um, you know, it's a real old boys network in a way, trying to get into those that, that frozen um, aisle. And you have to pay uh, for many of the grocery stores. You actually have to pay what are called slotting fees. And so, you know, some, you know, you'll, you'll pay for the shelf space and you'll pay uh, tens of thousands of dollars for them to give you shelf space to put your pints on it. So you can imagine how many pints you then have to sell to make that economically feasible. So we would sit there and we would go, okay, well, we've got this offer from this grocery store chain, but we're going to have to pay $100,000 and wait, it's going to, we're, we're estimating it might take two years to make the $100,000 back from the sale of those pints before we're really moving. And so you'd have to balance which grocery store chains you wanted to be in based on um, those slotting fees and based on the finances. Yeah, and then you're also paying a company to help you orchestrate that right. too. Right, broker fees. Broker fees. Um, and uh, you know, and, and the the margins with wholesale are obviously insanely small, right? If we sell a pint out of the ice cream shop directly to a customer for nine dollars, then we know how much that pint costs us to make, which you know was two two and a half dollars. So we understand the profit margin. But if we sell that pint to a distributor for four dollars, and then the distributor sells it to a grocery store for five dollars and then the grocery store sells it for nine dollars you know we're only making that much 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 smaller um, margin and you know which is fine uh, with volume I mean that's it's a volume game it's volume. you know yeah, it's it, it means game. right and so otherwise the expenditure to to do it it puts you underwater I mean you, you you know you you have to allow everybody told us when you're getting into wholesale it'll take two or three years to make money you know and that's if you're successful because of the amount of money you're having to expend to get under the store shelves to market it to pay the brokers to pay all the different people involved um, and because the margins are so small B. Kupniewski hope I said that right <laughs> wants to know what was the hardest aspect of consistent quality control when becoming so popular? Yeah, yeah, Bob, I know you're a, one of our biggest and most supportive fans, and thank <laughs> you for that. Um, and I know <laughs> you got pints where there wasn't any pieces of ooey-gooey in them and things like that. And it absolutely happens. It is, uh, um, it's crazy. Uh, even, you know, one would think that when you get into an automated situation in a factory and you're built from scratch with all those great machines, that your consistent quality control would um, just, you know, be a thing of the past. At the end of the day, though, people have to operate those machines. And so if somebody's standing over the machine and where the ooey gooey is going into the machine and isn't paying attention, um, then, you know, then five, six, 10, 20 pints will go by and uh, there won't be any pieces of ooey gooey in them. Uh, or the machine clogs up a little bit. And so it's not get, got enough pieces of ooey gooey going through and going into each pint. So it, um, you know, I think at the beginning when we first started in the factory, we didn't foresee that any of those issues would really be problematic. So we, we, uh, didn't we hadn't put enough resources into really checking the quality control of what was coming off the assembly line in part because we were so overwhelmed with just trying just needing to like make ice cream because we, the factory was so delayed in opening and we were just trying to like get it done um, so after you know six months eight months nine months in the factory the quality control got a lot lot better because we put people on the job of just focusing on 
making sure that there's enough pieces of ooey gooey in each pint, etc., etc. It doesn't mean those problems still don't happen occasionally from time to time. You'll even see it in a Ben and Jerry's pint from time to time. But it's you know it's much much rarer the bigger you get because you put in all those checks and balances on your system, you know. And we didn't have them at the very beginning. Joe wrote, "I live on the Jersey Shore and have been wanting to get it." into the ice cream business for a few years now, been researching and saving. Do you recommend any business books or courses for the business? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, I think the number one thing uh, that I did when we were starting out was I went to Penn State. So Penn State has a probably a hundred, I think 125 year old dairy program, a dairy school, an uh, ice cream course. And you don't have to go to Penn State to do this. It's, a, it's what's called a short course. So it's a seven-day course that's offered in January every year. And um, the Berkey Creamery is the name of their ice cream company that's on the campus there. And so you get to do hands-on stuff, but you get to do a lot of... Um, real technical ice cream chemistry stuff so if you're really interested in ice cream and making your own ice cream and understanding the way that the fat interacts with the um, the liquids and the solids and, and all of that stuff you know that that course is was invaluable and all the industry players go so you know the ben and jerry's and haagen and unilever they all send representatives and mom and pop shops go and so you meet people and network with people uh that are passionate about ice cream the way you are. So that that's sort of the number one thing. Yeah, and I would add, you know, just in terms of building a company and a brand, um, uh, one of the one of uh, the the places that that um, I attended and that we used kind of as a model once we were kind of up and you know had more than one shop was Zingerman's. Zingerman's is a community of businesses outside of um, in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, and, um, they teach courses. Um, so, I mean, you can take, you can go to a seminar there, you can, you know, buy their books, but, you know, I think we were running a company, you know, from, you know, the mom and pop perspective that really needed to be codified eventually. Um, and I, and, you know, Zingerman's kind of gives you that. So I would, I would recommend Zingerman's books, um, as and you know another book i think that was helpful just in terms of of company culture and the vibe was uh danny meyer's book um setting the table mm, so yeah, that that was um that was a, an, an inspirational book when we were starting out zach Villanueva sent in when starting up an ice cream shop what's your top five items equipment to invest in Right. Well, I think it depends on, on what kind of ice cream shop you're doing. I mean, for us, when we started, um, because I knew we were going to make all of our ice cream from scratch, um, from beginning to middle and end, the number one thing was um, I needed a pasteurizer. Um, and so, um, you know, we we needed that piece of equipment in order to cook our own ice cream base. And then, of course, you need your ice cream maker, um, a batch freezer. Um, and um, you need the dipping cabinets, you know, to, to, to scoop the ice cream out of. Um, and you need a blast freezer, uh, like a hardening freezer. So normal freezer sort of operates at zero or negative 10. Um, but to make the best ice cream, smooth, creamy ice cream, you need a, 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 a freezer that can get down to negative 20 or negative 30. And that's what's called a blast freezer or hardening freezer. So I think those are really the, the critical pieces. Seaglass asks, what's the best ice cream base to create my own flavors at home? Yes. Um, so, you know, I'm going to just refer to our uh, cookbook here and tell you that uh, the base that we would use for everything is basically equal parts milk and cream. One and, uh, I don't have my glasses on, one and two, three, one and two thirds cups milk, one and two thirds cups heavy cream. So equal parts cream and milk, and then a half a cup of skim milk powder. That's dehydrated milk. So all the milk solids without the milk water. It's basically a thickening agent um, for the ice cream. Three quarters cup sugar, and then three egg yolks. 
and no vanilla. That's just a basic sweet cream mix that you can um, use as a uh, sounding board for all of your ideas. Izzy Lang wants to know, are you looking to stay in New York for future ventures? Yeah. Yes. I think so. Yeah. I mean, unless an amazing opportunity comes about elsewhere, yeah. uh, you know, for now, I'm a, I'm a diehard New Yorker, so it, it'll take a lot for me to get out of New York. No, New York is not dead. New York is, is always going to be alive. And so I, I pride myself in some ways is supporting New York in that way. But, you know, with that said, like I said, if some incredible offer came in you never know <laughs> yeah i mean we raised our family in brooklyn our kids go to school in brooklyn we live here uh i you know it's it's hard to imagine not wanting to be here and be part of this community fiddlehead ice cream would like to know how do you find a good location for a successful scoop shop well, I think that, you know, the first thing is, is you just go out and look constantly. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly out on my bicycle and just taking walks and taking photographs of empty storefronts uh, and locations um, and looking at what the foot traffic looks like and the, the feel. And for ice cream, you know, we look at like, is it near a movie theater? Is it near a school? Or is it near other restaurants, critically, you know, that are like what you call feeder restaurants that people are going to go to a restaurant and then afterwards get ice cream you know is it near um uh, those kind of activities is it near a subway station mm -hmm. um and so we look at that and then corners i mean yeah corners and then in the feel of it too yeah. um the, the you can you can walk into a space or at least i feel like i can walk into a space and say oh this feels right you mm -hmm. know and, and this this would be a great spot there is uh, you know an element of you know of, of feeling yeah. <laughs> in all the other parts. In addition, um, Fiddlehead Ice Cream asks, how do you plan to finance your new adventure? Yeah. So, yeah, earlier we were talking about not necessarily wanting to take investor money. Uh, unfortunately, I just, you know, it's not realistic. And so the model that we're looking at, though, now, I, I feel much better about. It's 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 what's called a traditional restaurant model. So say you've got a chef and he wants to open up a restaurant. He doesn't have money, and so, but he can make incredible food. And so he goes to investors, and the investors would support uh, the financial build-out of the restaurant and the shop. And then the profits from that shop, that restaurant, uh, go back to the investors until they're made whole. So let's pick a number. Say it costs $100,000 to build out a space. You raise $100,000 from investors. 100% of those profits um, go back to the investors until, uh, and, you know, at, at which point they've now been paid back their, um, their, their investment. And now you create a split, which is, you know, can be 60, 40, 70, 30, it's some version of that in which, you know, uh, the chef, uh, the, the, the people starting the business would get um, that chunk of the profits moving forward and the investors then would get, say, 30% of the profits uh, moving forward. So over the course of the rest of the business, um, you know, they'll see that uh, return on their investment. Now, the reason why that's so wholly and completely different is that the old model, the way we raised money at Ample Hills and that equity model was all based on this concept of a future exit, you know, where you sell the company for hundreds of millions of dollars. And so the need or the concern for profitability and watching every dollar wasn't there. It's sort of built into the system that it's not there because the whole point is growth, growth, growth. And sometimes growth for the sake of growth without focus on whether it's profitable. There's sometimes that sense that, you know, we'll fix the profitability issue later. As long as we're growing, we can be attractive to somebody that might want to purchase it. Whereas in this model, Jackie and I aren't going to make money unless the company's profitable from day one because we have to return all that money, that profit, to the investors so that they're made whole before we see a dime, which is, you know, a, a much more grounded way to structure the dynamic of a, of, a, of a being, of an entity, of a business. D. 
do they make money if you sell the company or what happens at that time? Right. Well, that's a good question. So, you know, uh, yes, they, they would have a, an ownership stake, which whatever that balance of power was in, in terms of the way that it, ha that it happened. But if you go to open a second shop, um, they don't necessarily have an ownership stake in a second shop. They would have to then invest new money in the build out of the second shop because you're not getting to build the second shop with the profits from the first, which is what you would do in, a, in an equity model, right? Because all the profits go into growth in that other equity model. But in this model, uh, there are no profits that are going into growth. All the profits are just going back to paying people. And so um, there's no money to grow unless you now raise more money for another entity. And that entity then would also be grounded in that way. So that, that's just the, the model that we're looking at. B. Berliner sent in, in terms of starting over, how are you thinking about company culture? Will you do anything different this time? Yeah, I mean, um, company culture at Ample Hills developed organically, um, and it was good. It, you know, it was a mom and pop shop, um, mom and pop vibe. Um, we were all, you know, in this together. Um, in the beginning, it was it was good, but then you know, it was also not so good because we um, we hadn't really fully set clear expectations. We hadn't set clear expectations and roles for people. Um, we didn't have a roadmap of, you know, uh, if you start out as a, as a scooper, how can you become, you know, a, um, an area manager? Or we hadn't set that out because we were growing organically and also very quickly. Um, so, I mean, I've thought about that a lot because there were you know, there was a lot of disappointment sometimes because those expectations weren't clear, because the roles weren't clear. Um, and having, you know, like I mentioned before, gone and taken some of these um, courses and been involved in a roundtable discussion at Zingerman's, we really, you know, kind of talked about how important it is to make sure all of that is, you know, codified and, and written out and understood so that people can feel good about, you know, where they are currently and where they're going to go. Everybody needs that sense of security, that sense of, you know, um, feeling like, you know, they're a part of something. Um, but, you know, you can't really, you know, feel, you know, that you're a part of something, you know, without um, understanding what your, your actual role is, and then, you know, fitting into the greater vision of the company, which is, you know, what we, we basically started doing um, towards the end of our time with Ample Hills. And, and I was really excited about it because I felt like we were on this path of, of really, you know, kind of uh, making that clear. But, um, you know, um, so yes, I would, you know, definitely um, want to do that differently um, and start from the beginning. Uh, Brooke Shapiro asks, will you ever teach ice cream classes again? Yes, of course. <laughs> that was one of the most uh, fun things we did at Ample Hills, and it'll definitely be a part of anything new we do. Ed would like to know, if you are opening a new shop in the near future, how do you plan to deal with the coronavirus hangover? Are you assuming it will all be normal in 2020, 2021? I hope so, but it's, it's, I, I mean, it's definitely not assuming that it's going to be normal. Right, okay, it's not going it, it won't be normal in twenty twenty one. No, we actually uh, have a plan. I mean, as we've built out a model, uh, you know, we built out a ten year model for a new shop, which is shocking because you know when I think about when we opened the first shop, we we didn't have a one year model, we right. didn't have a six month model. So that's just an example of something we're doing differently now. Is we actually have a financial model that you know, goes down line item by line item. And as we built that 10-year model, the first year of 2021, uh, heading into 2022, we've built it based on the idea of sales being a percentage of what they would be in 2022, based on uh, a worst-case scenario in which, you know, um, you know, people still aren't coming in for those ice cream classes 
in those birthday parties and sitting down for long times at, at tables because of the coronavirus. And so it's just sort of, um, it's about, you know, obviously building out a space that's safe for the employees and safe for the customers, but, but really it's about sort of setting expectations, you know, with a new landlord for rent in the first year um, and with uh, what we expect to bring in in revenue in the first year based on the idea that things will not be back to normal until probably later in 2021 or even 2022. Izzy Lang, who says um, her favorite flavors are peppermint patty and flavor of record from York, England, asks, are you planning any twists in the old Ample Hills flavors or did you have to leave your original flavors behind? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely um, going to do some twists on Ample Hills flavors. I mean, interestingly enough, uh, you know, we could make those uh, many of those flavors again. Um, I mean, we designed and created them and there's nothing um, that's really sort of copyrighted about, you know, making a ooey gooey butter cake ice cream or making an oatmeal uh, cookie ice cream. For the most part, though, I think our just our creative desire is to not just replicate what we did at Ample Hills, especially if we're going to be in Brooklyn. Uh, with a shop and uh, you know we want to do something different and differentiate ourselves I mean when we were at Ample Hills we must have made two to three hundred flavors over the course of 10 years so at any given time there's only 20 flavors in the dipping cabinet but we made hundreds of flavors so um, I think that's yeah I mean it's fun I mean that's probably the most exciting part about it all is like you know, creating new flavors, but then, yeah, even taking some of our classics, the ones that we created to begin with that, you know, we have, you know, uh, you know, history of, of being very successful flavors to take those flavors and, you know, to do something even more creative with them yeah. and have more fun with them and be playful. And, you know, I mean, you know, Nona D's oatmeal lace cookies, um, the, those are my mom's cookies. I mean, we're, you know, those are my mom's cookies. Like, that's all I'm going to say about that. Like, those aren't going anywhere. Yeah. We're going to find a way to figure out how we can make those into a new fabulous flavor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we'll just keep uh, experimenting and keep playing and, and, uh, and adding to what we've done in the past. And finally, Sally Vading asks, how have you managed to stay so positive and upbeat. You guys seem resilient. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we go today through phases. Today is a good day. Yeah. It's literally like, or today is a good hour. Actually, it's interesting because I talked to Kathleen King, who was the owner of Kate's Cookies, um, who then became the owner of Tate's Cookies. Um, and you know, that company sold for like $500 million. And one of the, I reached out to her when we lost the, the, you know, Ample Hills and, or, you know, we were in the process of the bankruptcy, whatever. Right. And I just, I just needed to hear something from somebody that was positive, that had a positive outcome. Clearly she had a positive outcome. I have no idea if that's going to be our positive outcome, but, um, I think one of the things she said to me that was such great advice was just like, you know, when you're going through this, um, and she, you know, had one company that, and her name was actually, she had to give up her name. Her name is Kathleen and the name of her company was Kate. And, um, it was taken over, you know, by, uh, you know, somebody else. And she had to give that up and it was a very, very hard, difficult time for her. And she just said, you know, just don't think about, um, tomorrow. Don't even think about, you know, three hours from now, think about the moment that you're in right now and think about, you know, can I, you know, what, what do I need to be okay? And in the next moment, and it's just constantly kind of like that. It's like, okay, what do I need to do right now to feel okay? You know, maybe I just need to clear off my desk (laughs) and then I can think a little clearer, or maybe I need to sit down and figure out like, how we're going to create Nona D's oatmeal lace, you know, cookies mm-hmm. into a new ice cream flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's touch and go. I don't know. I mean, I, I think the resiliency, um, you know, is, is, you know, something that we have to actually be resilient yeah. because we've got a family and 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. If some in, in some ways we don't have a choice. Um, you know, so like you you know you may wake up one morning and just want to stay in bed all day and hide underneath the covers and, and, and cry and not um, have to be resilient uh, and positive and uh, optimistic. Um, but I mean, we have to we have to do it because. Um, we don't really ha- we don't have any other choice and so there's definitely days where you know you have to you know fake it until you make it as yeah. they say. you know you just you do put on a happy face and you go out and you try to say okay what are the three things that we can try to do today uh, to control our destiny and we you know and and what what are the the, the darts that we can throw against the wall today to see if uh, some some new thing happens i think it's 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 so critically important which you know really sort of takes us to the end here, because I think that was the last question, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, at the beginning of each of these podcasts, in the intro, uh, we talk. Jackie talks about the podcast being about what happened, the story about what happened, but more importantly, what comes next. And it's just, uh, you know, one of our uh, regrets is that um, you know we still hear seven, eight episodes in, don't know what comes next, and it's and it is driving us uh, a little bit mad. Um, but basically, um, you know, we thought when we started this process that the time that it would take to get the story told of the first six or seven episodes would give us the time to know what came next and be able to just sort of segue nicely into being able to announce uh, the location and the plan and uh, of course the best laid plans um but basically uh we just don't know right now we've got a lot of great uh, ideas and concepts in play but um you know based on that personal bankruptcy case and based on uh some of the timing uh with 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 everything uh we don't know what comes next yet, and we'd just ask uh, for your patience while we continue to try to have patience ourselves, um, yeah. which is running out. But basically, in a, in, a, in a few weeks, we hope to come back with a, a new episode. We're coming back. We definitely will We're come back. back. Just whether or not it's a couple of weeks or more than that, we will let you know. Um, but in the meantime, uh, you know, thank you for listening and thank you for all your questions. I believe your resiliency comes from a belief there's a 2.0. I look forward to hearing what's next. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks, Deb. <laughs> and thanks for taking us on this journey. Yeah. It was really wonderful to have our good friend, Debbie Rosen, who we used to hang out with. I just have to say this, you know, in her guidance um, counseling office in Brooklyn when we were all teaching together. And, you know, we'd share positives and negatives and bemoan our lives and make plans for the future. So I'm just grateful that you're still in our lives. So thank you. Likewise. <laughs> thank them. Love you guys. Love Bye. you. Bye.